It's like it's like the mizbeach. Whenever they had like a break in the korbanot, they had extras just to keep it going and fill in. Get some mizbeach. There isn't much of a difference between guys and girls in anything. At the meal you told us, can you elaborate? What does that mean? Anything like you said, my machonim, guys and girls should both wash. Well, what's what's the reason for? It's berakat hamazon. Three times a day, guys and girls same. And then what about tefillin? What about tzitzit? And what about gemara? That's a lot of questions. Right. Is there a difference? Or? Well, Gemara we already concluded man shouldn't be safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, where should I start? It's not a, it's a, there's a... Uh, where did the difference come from? Why do we make a difference? I don't know, the Maim Achorim thing I think is based on Sod, not based on Halakha. It's, like, it's a Kabbalistic thing that women don't. Not based, it's not based on any halakha. There's no reason why. The Birkat Amazon is the same for men and women. Why would there be a difference in whether they should... It was, for a woman not to do it? There are... The, the only sources that are quoted are like uh, Al-Pisod, as far as I know. That's why a lot of women, they don't do Maimachonim. Sometimes you see that they do. Um, it's, it's not something that there's any clear reason for making a difference between men and women. The reason was either... Because of Melech Sedomit, because they would touch their eyes with Melech Sedomit, which why should, yeah, is it no okay for women to be blind? <laughs> if that was the reason, it doesn't really make any sense. And if it's because hands being dirty and it's not kavod to the bracha, it's the same thing. Right. Why should it be different? So in the, uh, in the other mitzvot, so here it's complicated because basically if you, re- if you open the Rambam or any really Sephardic, any of the Sephardic Rishonim, especially the Rambam, but even the Shulchan Aruch, it doesn't mention anything about like the Rambam will say, a woman who puts on tefillin shouldn't do it, say a bracha, because she's not chayavit. Or a woman who puts on tzitzit shouldn't say a bracha, because she's not chayavit. I don't have a reason to believe that the Rambam had a lot of women putting on tzitzit or tefillin in his neighborhood. But according to the halacha, it's, uh, you know, women are patuot from mitzvot to shazman grama. There's no isur in doing it in the Ashkenazi uh, tradition, there were many reasons given to pro- actually to prohibit it, like uh, reasons of Kufnaki. right the, it, how about cleanliness. But the reason that was maybe the most compelling of all the reasons that came out of the uh, the Ashkenazi world, I thought, was that even for men, we minimize the amount that we wear tefillin because we feel like we're not really able to be like on the level of kavanah to respect the tefillin. Unless you're Right, so you have to be on a high, or, or you know, some individuals they could do it, but but therefore we take off our tefillin, like we only wear it at shacharit, we don't even wear it at mincha, the main reason we don't wear it at mincha is because we aren't able to muster the amount of kavanah that we need in order to, uh, in order to do it. So the, the Aruch HaShulchan actually says it, um, he says that therefore uh, women, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for someone who's not even obligated to... Uh, to take upon themselves to put on tefillin when those who are who are obligated in tefillin, uh, you know, try to you know are trying to minimize it because they uh, because they can't uh, muster the the proper level of kavanah. That's the that that's with regard to tefillin. So what and, and then there's the the other thing is that there's one there's like a targum of Yonatan ben Uziel. I'm pretty sure that says that it's an issue of like beget ish and beget isha because since it wasn't uh, uh, since it wasn't a common thing for women to wear so it became like a man's it became associated with manliness and therefore that's the issue all these all these that's concerns, a little bit weird though oh, for okay. a mitzvah I wasn't you know I was just saying right. no you're right yeah. I mean the main I think that the most com- the, the most 
Nowadays in the modern world where everyone pretty much observes right. hygiene, no, that's, okay? That's, uh, you know, I don't think the gufnaki is as much of a problem. I think the main issue is, um, like what the Aruch HaShulchan says, is the, is the concern that is the most compelling, which is that, you know, which we try to minimize wearing tefillin as it is, so a person shouldn't enter into a situation where they're going to, uh, it's like the reason why we don't do tefillot nedava, you know, because uh, I can barely have kavanah during my regular tefillin. I'm going to add another one. Um, but then obviously in the super modern world of the 20th century, when like reform and conservative women are wearing tefillin, they're wearing tzitzit, and it becomes a political issue. So now like Rav Ovadia in his book, mainly for that reason, is like, you know, it's like you're going in, it looks like you're identifying with reform, you're identifying with conservative yeah, women, right? So the, so the basic, basic answer, you know, sikum, is that alpi halacha, strict halacha, like purely by ikar adin for svaradim, it would be just, it would be a, an optional mitzvah, just like shaking the lulav, just like, by the way, hearing the shofar is also only optional, that the people don't know that. For women also, it's, only, it's also a mitzvah to say shizman goma. It's optional for them. Um, there's no real issue from the Sephardic perspective. From the Ashkenazi perspective, they have certain caveats and concerns that they, are, they oppose it. One of them is political in nature, and, that, and, and in the state of Israel, now that, there's a, now that that became a political issue in the state of Israel too, Rabbi Vadia was also against it. But I mean, these are not halachic considerations. They're more political considerations, or you could say um, ideological considerations. I'm not saying that that means they're invalid. You know, sometimes those considerations could be valid. But yeah, it's sort of like giving, it's giving credence to it. It's, uh, it's identifying with it. There's importance to deviating from leftists. Of course, right. That's the other <laughs> thing that uh, Shema. Somebody will think I'm a leftist. Shema. Yeah, that's Xera. Like we learned today, he's gonna go in the derech minut. That's true. It's serious, slippery slope issue. If you're not kofir leftist, right. then you're automatically kofir Judaism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a slippery slope, slippery slope. Uh, concern? No, I think the point is that it's like we're not. It's like wearing a kippah, okay? Wearing a kippah, meikar <coughs> adin is like midat chasidut. Midat chasidut. There were there were some achronim who said no. It became chukot agoy to not wear a kippah. You're going to be looking like a goy, so therefore you have to do it. But really, all most agree that that it's it's midat chasidut, and yet pretty much. All observant people, you know, will will wear a kippah. All Shomer Shabbat people, I say, will wear a kippah. Nowadays, why? Not because it's meikar adin, but because it's showing identify with the community of your eshamayim. So a person does something to show identify with the community of your eshamayim. I know that if I don't, if I, you know, I have to put on a kippah if I say a bracha or pray. I don't like the old Sephardic way. If you went back to uh, the old, you know, the old country where that wasn't required, meaning where many people. If you look, even in Germany, even in, uh, you know, there are pictures of Rav Hirsch and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, they didn't wear a kippah because you only wore a kippah in Jewish settings. Just, 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 just Rav Hirsch not wearing a kippah? Uh, in you know, his time. I don't know if it's him. I'm not sure if it's him himself, but yeah, is it? No, I heard it in his, in his school. In his right, they didn't wear, right? Only in the, the tefillah. Right, only for the limode Kodesh, right? Yeah. Because that was, but that was what they did on the street, and many and many Sephardic countries too, Syria and and they, only maybe the rabbi wore a kippah, but generally speaking, the people didn't wear a kippah. And so, it, but once you live in a community where uh, where um, that's the standard, like wearing a kippah means I'm I, or covering my head, I should say. I don't want to say necessarily has to be wearing a kippah. You know, you could, whatever you do, um, wearing a hat, wearing whatever. Uh, it's, it means that it's a sign of identifying with a certain community. And if you don't, it's kind of saying, I'm not part of that community. So now that it's seen that way, you know, there's a significance in it from 
uh, from a social perspective? Is it, does it, that turn it into an ikara din that you have to do it? No, but that gives you a meaningful reason to do it. Does it turn it into minhag Yisrael, though? It, heard, it might, be, it might be considered a minhag of the, the community of observant Jews. I wouldn't, I would, I'd say that makes sense. But, I, but the thing is that a minhag, officially a real minhag, it has to be established by like Chachamim. Uh-huh. Like it's the Rambam like says, people, are no and people don't realize that. Like if you look at the actual, the, the Rishonim always talk about Minhagim. Nowadays, like in the, in the mainstream world, people think anything people have been doing a really long time yeah. is a Minhag. But yeah. that's, that's not true. If you look at the Rambam and also many other Rishonim that talk about Minhagim, they say these Minhagim were things Shehinihigu Abetin or the Hachachamim. Right, the Rambam distinguishes halacha from minhag because he says that halacha was what was established by the national betin and minhag was what was established by a local betin. But it's always based on chachamim. It's not like somebody just started doing something and then all of a sudden became minhag. I don't think that's understood by minhag. Yeah, the Rambam says it. Well, he's, on, he, he's in Shaim. <laughs> no, I'm saying that the average Jew does not know that that's what No, I, I don't think people know that. Like, um, like there's an interesting, on the topic of women, there's an interesting, there's an interesting machloket uh, about can women do shechita? Right. So the Beit Yosef says, there's no, there's no, no, no there's nothing problem, no problem with doing it. Right, and the, and the, and then the, uh, and then the, the, the shach says, uh, uh, you know, the problem is that it's, there's a minhag. He says, the fact that there's a, uh, the, the question comes up, there's never been any official shochetet that was of a community. So does the fact that there never has been mean that it's the minhag that we don't have it? Or is that just what we say, lora ino enara'aya? The fact that you didn't see something doesn't make it a minhag. It seems like that's what the Sephardic Rishonim thought. They thought that if something wasn't a hanhaga that was established by chachamim, that's not called a, uh, it's not called a minhag. I mean, hag is something that's done by chachamim because yeah. a lot of silly. Th- that's why I mean hag stut, you know. Then you have this gray area of like cultural minhagim, but they're not really minhagim. And you know, from the pers- there's an obligation to observe the chachamim, the the minhagim of your of your community, but that's only minhagim that are real minhagim that were from and the chachamim. Right. Yeah, I could say chachamim. Like, yeah, but times it's like the minhag in Iran is like oh, like uh, he went to Bishari Tova and says. Like, uh, oh, like, what happens at the time of dying? Like, like someone was talking to him, he's like, oh, Baruch Adajah, like, just, like, raise up his hand. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> 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 like, Zem and Hag, 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 Yo, that's a nice nice because they, they probably followed that command that you can wash your hands in the morning. Yeah. You know, that, 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 I'm just kidding. They say the bracha after the washing anyway, so a long time after. More likely they remember their grandfather used to probably wash his hands. Right before. Yeah. And then yeah. they're like, oh yeah. Well, I know in the old days, that. yeah, that's interesting. It's probably right. Yeah. They, they have min- some interesting minhagim. Uh, also. Oh, right. Yeah. That's that another. My family, father's family, also. They would say the bracha of Every time. Every time. Yeah. Also, also, Very uh, interesting. I don't know. Like, when Hamas was saying, was for like, bracha of the Malashinim, he's like, oh, some of the. Haminim. <laughs> That's funny. Why not? 
Wait, what was it? But I don't know if we're done with that. There was a, wait, there was still a there was still a question about uh, about the Gemara. Is that is that still in play? That question, or were? <laughs> do we? Do you think it? Do you think it's any different? Maybe that what you said. <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, I see it. I believe very it. Loud also. Someone yeah, has a very loud voice. Proud, proud of their Yeah, that one's That's the thing that It's like that's the surefire way to get it wrong. Right, we know that that can't be correct because if that were correct, then Yaakov wouldn't have given it up. Either this or this, and you picked the only wrong option. Like this wasn't. Okay. Okay. So. In the right side, there he went to more specific. But it's not a bracha. You said the only one. You want to use either ha'etz or. Hadama, but you said it's Vadama. I don't know. So an, okay. I bet you said that you, you you picked the only wrong option. Yeah, but right. Hadama, but it's basically the last word, whatever. Yeah, that's right. Is Ole. Wait, should we do the Gemara question first? Because we, yeah, we didn't do it, okay? So that just qu- very. Uh, I'll try to be quick so we can move to the next one. I know. Okay. Nobody listens. There's like three, four people, three, four people. I know the be- I I know the people listen to it and they're all going to be okay. Um, the uh, no, I think um, I think uh, the, the the issue is is that what what it's based on. Whatever hesitation there's about women learning Gemara, first of all, yeah, we take a step back and we ask, you know, is there an obligation for anybody to learn Gemara, or is it helpful or meaningful for anybody to learn it? Is itself a good question. Most people, I, I think, it's fair to say that most people who approach learning of Gemara are not really prepared. And don't re- it's not really the best use of their learning time. I think that's true for the vast majority of people that I've encountered. Now, does that mean that there's nobody that Gemara learning is good for? No, there are definitely some people that it is good for. Or there's some way of exposing, like there's some way of introducing Gemara learning uh, that would be more meaningful uh, in, in a certain, in, you know, a, that gave it a framework and a context that would be really meaningful that... Um, that would be that would be good, and then and advanced students, of course, would would benefit immensely from that. But I I don't think anybody really in the beginning of their learning is gonna is going to be using their their time most productively uh, in learning Gemara for the reason that I said before that um, that the Gemara the Torah Shoal Peh is you have to think of it as a real subject, an organized subject, just like the Mishneh Torah presents it, systematic and and. <laughs> And uh, and very complex, but well organized and uh, and very comprehensive. So, in any subject that you want to learn, you would start out by learning the basic introduction. You would take intro to biology, and then you would take uh, I don't know undergraduate course in in biology. And, and in each of those courses, they would be giving you textbooks. And the function of a textbook is that it structures the material, and it presents the material in a developmental sequence that's appropriate for a learner, starting with what's most basic and getting more complicated as you move forward. And so by the end of the textbook, you have a kind of a picture of whatever that subject is. I was using biology as an example, but it could be anything. If you complete the textbook, you have a good picture of everything, everything that is you know, the general outline and how everything fits together. Now, if you go back and, and, and if you go to a, a, a more advanced course, you'll be reviewing all of those same things in that same structure at a deeper level. And then when you get to a really advanced level, one topic from that course will be an entire course. That's what happens, right? Meaning one subtopic 
will be an entire course. Well, you'll go into all the details and really, really exhaustively. But because the presumption, you can't take that, you can't sign up for that advanced course until you took 101 or 102, right? You have to already have that general framework so that now when you, stu- you have a specific uh, a course on some aspect of that subject, you know where that aspect of the subject fits into the whole picture. You, you don't lose it. And then let's say at a really advanced level, you decide that you want to go into seeing where they got all the research and came up with all this stuff about that particular topic or another topic. You'll go read research papers. You'll go read, I don't know, journals of, uh, of, that, of that subject to get the latest different opinions or different findings in that field. But because you have a framework, when you read it, it's gonna make sense to you. If I didn't take course 101 or 102 or the graduate level courses about those specialty topics, I'm not gonna understand what that journal is saying and I'm gonna end up looking up every word in that journal article on, in, on Wikipedia to try to figure it out and figure out what's, what's going on, right? So that's what people do with Gemara. They open up a Gemara, which is basically the discussions and debates of people who would be writing for the most advanced professional journals of Halakha, who already know Course 102 and 101, 102, 202, everything, you know, and they have it all in their mind like a complete textbook. And they're talking about details and debating about details that are these very seemingly technical aspects of the field. And I'm reading that and like, why are they debating about this? And what is this about? And what's the context? And I have to try to go backwards to try to, try to t- determine what it is they're even talking about, right? So that's what people jumping into Gemara looks like to somebody who's looking you know, from the outside. The only reason people do it is because it's highly prized as such a, 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 an important thing and a holy thing and a special thing. And it's, you know, it's exciting because of the value attached to it. But if at the end of the two years learning Gemara and Yeshiva, if you ask the person, what do they really know? Even about the subject they learned in the Gemara, it's not going to be that much. But if a person took two years and learned the enti- entire Sefer of the Rambam, they would actually know. They won't remember every detail, right? The, the people who learn the you know, Rambam, Yomi, you're not going to remember every, maybe some people will. Obviously, some people have really good memory. You don't have to remember every detail, but you're definitely going to, have recognition memory. If you hear it again, you're going to know, you're, it's going to sound familiar. And you're going to have a general idea of all these things. So that if you hear a discussion about a topic that you came across in the course of that learning, you're going to know what they're talking about and have a framework and have a context and be able to talk about it. And you'll be able to say what you learned. But I challenge you, this was the old thing that we used to say, my learning partners and I, when we were younger, we used to say, go up to anybody learning Gemara and Yeshiva. You, I don't want to say this, because I'm afraid you're going to do it. Yeah. And ask the person, what mitzvah are you learning about? What mitzvah are you learning about? Right. Unless it's like the first daf of brachot, they're not going to know. Right? Meaning, they, if you ask a kid, there's learning elu mitziot. Okay? Second parak of Baba Mitziah, very commonly learned by kids, Right? Right. What are they going to, and you ask them, what is the mitzvah you're learning about? It's going to be, you know, we're learning about like if you find different things and if you can return it. And No, no, what, what mitzvah is it that you're learning about? No, you know, like if you find something that's wrapped up or it's separate. No, no, what is the mitzvah? What mitzvah from this? I don't know. Right, that's what you will get. I, mean, I promise. That's, that's what you will get. Right? So 
just because they don't have a sense of where this fits into any kind of a system. Right? That's what I just want to get to the women's thing, right? Sorry. So the issue with women learning is that the Rambam doesn't make any real distinction, except that then he says that he says that a woman who learns, she gets sachar just like a man. That's what he first says. But then he says, however, the Chachamim said, don't teach your daughter Torah because it's not good. Right? Now, right, right. Well, that's the, the Mishnah says that too. The Mishnah has two opinions about it and says that. The thing is that what most of the, um, what the Mepharshim, what that in, in modern times, more modern times, but not, not necessarily, even the Lubavitcher Rebbe and, you know, have said, is that it's very specific. It never says a woman can't learn Gemara. It says you shouldn't teach, meaning you shouldn't make it, in, uh, you shouldn't force it upon them to learn it. You shouldn't insist that they learn it because it's not suited to all of them. I would extend that to men too nowadays. I don't think all boys are suited to learn it. They should be learning more basic things. But, the, but if a woman wants to learn it, there's no indication that they can't. And in fact, there's many stories in the Gemara about people like Burya and others who went and learned. It says that she would learn, you know, Tons of braitot every day, like hundreds of braitot every single day. Now, back then, it was all Torah Shebaal Peh, so that meant that somebody told it to her. Right? Somebody must have told it to her. Right? And you all know the story about the ben Ish, that from the Ben Ishchai that I told you years ago. The story from the Ben Ishchai. The Ben Ishchai brings this story. It's not about him. But there's a story about this great Talmud Chacham who had, a, who had a da- only a daughter. He didn't have any sons. And he hired a tutor to teach the daughter and she was so brilliant that in a very short time, she like went way beyond what the tutor was gonna teach her and she wanted to learn like and things like that because she mastered everything else before that. And so he started teaching it to her and then one day the father found out and he was really mad and he's like, because the teacher, the tutor had already been paid for like a certain amount of time. So he had to fill the time, right? So he thought, okay, so I'll teach her whatever. The father was upset and he kicked her out, kicked the teacher out and said, forget it, take the money, but you know, you can't teach her that. She needs to be a good wife and whatever, right? Old school. So the, so what happened was this, this father was like this big rabbi and he had like shiurim that he would be giving with his talmidim, like, like a group like this, maybe every, every day or whatever, or with chavrutot and all that. And he would be in his like study or in his dining room or whatever, and she would be in the next room. And she was listening from her room for years to everything that was going on, right? So one day it happened, that, and he didn't know, she would just sit by the window and listen. And one day it happened that this, um, this strange visitor came and the visitor was saying things. I'm not going to go into the details of what it was because I don't because I have to explain each one of them. Rimazim that he gave, but he was saying these very mysterious things, and the father didn't understand what it was, and the daughter did understand, and like therefore had to run after the guest and bring him back. He left. The visitor left and had to bring him back, and 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 uh, and and the father said, "I don't understand. How did you know how to interpret all these different like hints that the guy made in his speech?" And he said, she said, well, you know, for the past 10, 15 years, like I've been listening to you or however long it was, you know, for the past several years, I've been listening to you and I learned everything that you learned, I learned. So all, all, the, all the learning you've been doing, I did. So he said, but I don't understand. If you learned all that from me, how come I didn't understand? The, how, how come I didn't understand? Right? So she said, because the person who, who learns in, a, you know, in private, a person who learns with humility, not showing anybody else, that person learns even better, okay. right? So therefore, since nobody knew I was doing it, 
That's why it, I, I, I got it even more. So what do you see from that? The Ben Yishchai is telling you a story about a girl learning Gemara. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I wanted to, that's, that was the whole point of the, of the story, right? Did Ben Yishchai record the story? Uh, it, I saw it. I think it's in, I can't remember where, where he cites it from. But Rav Ovadia cites it in the Perush, and the it's the Anaf Etzavot on Perkei Avot. It's it's quoted in there. It's a very interesting story. The difference between like forcing and teaching it. Yeah. Yeah, he says that, and and also the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that. The and that was like what the basic approach was of all those who introduced Gemara learning for girls that make it optional. That's why they always make it optional because they don't. My brother had said that even some of like the most well recognized like European Rashi Shivas, like some of some of their wives even like like quietly learned. Well, for sure, some of them did, and and like there's a uh, there's a, a famous um, what's his name uh, Shmuel ben Ali, the Rosh Shiva from Iraq, that he he, he was actually somebody uh, uh, who had like some issues with the Rambam. Like they didn't necessarily see eye to eye, yeah. and he and he he died and left the yeshiva with uh, he didn't leave a son to take over the yeshiva. So guess who taught the talmidim in the yeshiva? What? His daughter Whoa. from behind the curtain because it was not tenua, you know. But really? wow. was he rock? Or, this? It's just known. Wow. Right. Her name was Asnat Barzani, I think. Right? Yeah, she's like famous uh, woman. Obviously, she, yeah. Well, she didn't learn Talmud so much. She learned Midrash. I don't think. I don't think that she learned Gemara so much. I feel but, like the Chumalibers uh, would be Osir herself. Right. She would say, "I can't vote, and I also can't." <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. She was. She was interesting personality. But no, she never really. I mean, she learned Midrashim, which would be considered Torah Shabbat, but she never, as far as I know, wasn't really uh, known for learning Gemara. But who knows? Um, anyway, that, so the short, the short version is if a person is on the level where they should be learning Gemara and they want to, there's no idea of like a person can't learn a certain subject of Torah Shebichtav, Torah Shebalpeh if they want to. Obviously, Dvorah was judging the entire Jewish people and must have actually known what she was judging them based on. So she obviously learned the Torah Shebalpeh and back then you had to learn it from somebody, which means that they taught her. But that, okay, she had took the initiative. She wanted to know it, so she was taught. So why is it so tabloid? Uh, I, I, I can't answer questions like that. Yeah. All right, Rabbi. I don't know. That question I can't answer. I don't know. It's taboo. Why, why, why do you think it's so tabloid? Uh, in general, the, the Haredi world has very, uh, very, very um, rigid, uh, rigid concepts of gender roles and keeps the traditional gender roles. And I'm not saying that, and, and because traditionally they didn't learn that, even if it's true that they're allowed to, the fact that they traditionally didn't is enough for that to hold in a, such a traditional type of community. You don't take the Rambam that they shouldn't? You take the Rambam that they shouldn't? The Rambam says, Yilamid. Yilamid means that you shouldn't, Yilamid is what you do when you're, um, when the other person is being disciplined by you. You're teaching them. If she wants, if she's Lomedit, it's different. She seeks it out. She wants to know. If you educate, meaning he even says you shouldn't teach her Torah Shebikhtav. He says, if you teach her Torah Shebikhtav, it's okay. So we're talking about a situation where, but now we're talking so about it. the Rambam today would say, sure. I don't know what, the, I think the Rambam would say today that if, and then, that if somebody wanted to learn, it's perfectly fine because you have Niviot that learns. It's not like he couldn't have been doing something as well. When he thought Buria was doing something asur, or uh, any of these other women in Talmud that come up that obviously knew Torah Shibal Peh, he didn't yeah, think it was asur uh, to uh, learn it. 
Because she's not obligated. Okay. Meaning, even though you're thinking I'm giving her sachar by doing it, but why? Right. right. It's all about teaching her now. And the difference is that. Right. So that's that's. So you see, the Haredi world doesn't exactly follow that either because they do learn Torah Shabbat. Now, the the thing is that in that what what the Rambam is talking about is you have to look at two things. You have to first of all see that's He's telling you that Mikar Adin it's a lot. He's saying Tzivu Chachamim is saying that it's re- not recommended, right? And Why? Because they're not really Asuyot Lamed. Now that's a that's something that is talking about a culture where girls don't get any education. Okay. Right, they're sitting sewing and cooking and they couldn't maybe even read in a lot of cases, the women. Right, we're not talking about that. That's not the situation today. Today they are learning all kinds of things. I had a surgery on my arm done by a woman. She was a very competent surgeon. There are plenty of doctors and other very, you know, capable people or women who are educated. So it's not like they're not asuyot leid lamed nowadays. The question is... Does that necessarily mean they should be forced to learn it? I don't think. I don't think so. I don't think you would say that they should be. But if they're being educated, shouldn't we expose them to Divrei Torah so that they can choose whether they want, you know, what direction they want to go in with regard to learning? I think yes. I think another, I think another element of Gemara is that it's very similar to like the STEM fields, in which the very abstract nat- yeah. natural predilection of females Might is be to, better. That's what you were is, saying last yeah. No, men, no, meaning it's a very, better, no, no, it's a very, no, it's not, I, I doubt it, because it's very much a systematized learning, or the goal is at least, right. it's, 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 it's an abstraction, that, the, the, abstractions right. and systematizing, the, tr- the fields that involve a lot of abstraction typically don't attract women as much, yeah, and, and, and right. it's, not, it's not because of any, that's because of an innate difference in the way men and females, Right, the minds work. Yeah, yeah. Women's minds are not a system. But I think that's the real reason why Gemara doesn't attract that many women. Even the women who are educated and because just like math and and certain abstract sciences don't attract as many women. That's just because the nature of the what interests them and how their minds work. It doesn't adapt as easily to that. But if there's a woman that likes, there's also many men that are not attracted to math and science and things like that, and they're the same thing. So um, I'm not so sure that the gender breakdown is as black and white, but I think the mind breakdown makes sense. If someone's mind isn't attuned to it and they're not able to, and, and they're not interested in it, then they should uh, learn a different way. You know, now we have the Rambam. We, a person whose mind isn't attuned to Gemara can learn the Torah and understand it from there. And they don't, need to, uh, they don't need to subject themselves to a format of learning that doesn't work for them, you know? Sorry, so is a, is a point is a point to I guess from that point to accept the fact that this isn't going to work for me, or is it to try to eventually also expose yourself to it and deepen your appreciation for it like slowly by slowly? You think know, right the yeah. way for either yeah for either. I think the the thing is that if you it's in it's an interesting subject. 
so to the person who's ready to understand it. So if you find that it's not working for you, then you should go back to work on the foundations that will prepare your mind to appreciate it. It's just like a lot of people, I would say a, a, a pretty decent number of people, probably a very large percentage of people aren't really passionately excited about learning very advanced math or very advanced science. They're just not interested because it's hard. It's very demanding. It requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of background. It's very abstract. And so they're attracted to fields that are more concrete and more intuitive for them and, you know, more practical maybe. So that's the nature of the human mind. That doesn't mean that those subjects are not interesting. I bet those subjects are super interesting to the person who's ready to appreciate them, but many of us are not. Since we don't have the tools, we feel like, oh, it's so far from where we are that we, we don't know where to start. It'll, it'll just sound like a bunch of like, it'll sound very, very dry and distant from anything familiar to us. And the way you're saying it though, the way you're presenting is that like, is that, but that the eventual goal is to eventually study also, study it also, no? If the, when the person's ready, right. it's good, it's oh, good study. Or, we, or if the person has the use for very abstract legal back and forth. Yeah, if, if, if they're if a knack for it. If you're not becoming a posek and your goal is to teach Tanakh, like, mm. is, like, is there a benefit? No, oh, I hear. I mean, the use is that if, that in, in understanding Torah Shabbat um, it would be like, just like I would say to you, if you're studying, I'm going to change from my analogy of that I always use science. I'm going to try philosophy for a second. If you're studying philosophy, right, in a graduate level, at a certain point, you have to start reading all these original papers, right, by different thinkers and all that. And it's very challenging stuff and it's very technical stuff in the discipline of philosophy. So if you really want to know the subject and to appreciate all its nuances, you're going to want to know about those articles. Um, that might not be the thing you want to know in your first year or second year or 10th year of studying the field. But at some point, if you're curious about really having an exhaustive knowledge, so you're going to want to know what's behind and you know, what's the next step. So I think Gemara should be interesting to a person who wants to understand, um, understand the, right, what's behind the Tawash of al The only thing is, what you're thinking of, like in terms of a posek, that doesn't mean that you're going to want to learn sukkot. There's a, there's, a, there's a letter of the Rambam. I think I even like dog-eared it in my Shuvot Rambam because uh, it was so interesting where he says that you shouldn't waste your time on the shakla v'tarya of the Gemara, something that I abandoned years ago as a waste of time. Something that I abandoned years ago as a waste of time or something like that. Mi'uta toelet, something like that. Um, I forget the exact language, but I was like, wow. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, so he's, but what does that mean? That means the, the sugyot that are just a back and forth, the first two dapim of Yivamot, or three, you know. Um, sugyot that are just back and forth, just for the sake of discussing a counterfactual, why it isn't, why something that is couldn't not be, or whatever. Um, isn't really the best use of your time. You might want to go through it once just so you know about it, but to focus your time on every step of that back and forth, that's crazy, right? or every detail, it's like, 
That's not going to lead you to a higher understanding of Judaism. But if you're learning a halakha in the Rambam and you're learning an area and you know that, like, for example, we were coming up to the sugya of the Megadef that I was hoping we'd get to. We didn't quite get to it. But in the Hilchot Avodazwa, towards the end, you start talking about Megadef. In order to, it's a very interesting topic, and in order to get like the full dimension of it, it's useful to look at the Gemara and how it was ended up being formulated to get a to get the whole panorama when you have that context, you know. And but to focus on the, the like when they spend pages upon pages of just the drashot of the psukim back and forth to to prove whether there should be two and a half sukkah walls or 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 three and a half or whatever, that might not be the best use of a person's time. Understanding the two opinions and where they're coming from and what they mean might be a productive use of time, but getting lost in those details might not. And that was the only question. I mean, it's really, I should ask quickly now, is that it's interesting, like, 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 Shaka, Taya, and Gimura. If you think about it, it's like, it's like this, you know how, like, when you have, like, a draft of a book, where it, like, you have, like, all these red lines and yeah. marks and everything? Like, Ravina Arashi purposely put that in. It yeah. wasn't, like, by mistake. Yeah, no, no, no. Nobody's saying like, like, it was a back and forth and it was, it was yeah. like, why do they put But it's it? also heavily edited, especially the Talmud Babli. Right. Meaning, when, when you're well, looking... It was, con- it was a conscious decision. Yeah, yeah. When you, when you look at a sugya, like, one of the things that the academic Talmudists really demonstrated, like, again and again and again in the 20th century, starting with uh, the earliest ones and like down to now there's, there's still like a lot of good work being done on it is that the sugyot and the Talmud Bavli are heavily edited every single time the last opinion brought is the correct one you know that this doesn't happen in real life the last person to speak is always right you know no they str- or the people who lived out of order of the time periods are put in order of how the idea developed not how they chronologically lived or spoke there are many wonderful articles showing, demonstrating that to be true, and the Rishonim knew that too, because they sometimes make a side comment about it. Um, that's something else. That's something else. I'm saying in a sugya, when they have a back and forth and different suggested answers to a problem, and no, it can't be that because this. And then the final answer, oh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. How, how did that happen that every single time that every wrong answer went first? <laughs> the, the guy never spoke the second? You know, so the um, so it's it's heavily edited. There's a there's a tshuva Rabbi Nutam where he says that not every hava amina in the Gemara is really serious. Okay, there's a meaning every time the Gemara entertains a possibility, it's just trying to show you the process of thought. Exactly. Right. So that dwelling on every step as if it's a real possibility, and I need to analyze every step like they do in many yeshivot isn't the best use of your time. The best use of your time, you should follow the flow and get to where they are. But like, at the end of it, the main point is the idea and the concept, not the back and forth. That's, it's basically rhetoric, meaning it's, it's a style of engaging you in the topic. So you see the process of thinking. But that's, that's what I agree with. I agree with something that, that, that part of the reason why there's so much back and forth and I've actually purposely put that in there is because once you understand all the other possible possibilities that could be, right. you'll have a deeper appreciation for... Right, they did that on purpose. They didn't really think, oh, maybe, uh, maybe this. They just want you to see how they got where they got. Yeah, who was the next question? So we can we don't spend the I don't want to spend the whole time. Right, yeah, right. go ahead. Yeah, yes, Mr. Oh, Ariel has. Yeah, I, oh, I saw Jordan. Okay, go ahead. Already worded them. Wow, I did too. Actually, um, start reading so a pasuk. A couple, a couple of days ago in the shiur, we we spoke about how Yaakov is regarded <laughs> as the one of the the one of the avot that succeeded in raising his kids because they're all. Um, they're all on the path, right? The, mm-hmm. All 12 are on the path. 
we don't see it really, at least that I, I'm familiar with, like a lot of like positive parenting, like pearls from Yaakov. So I kind of, I wanted to see like, that's a good point. Where do we see, like, what do we see? <laughs> that might be an understatement. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like the, like the yeah, worst. I'm trying to be generous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm saying like, what, what, are, what are we able to learn from Yaakov's parenting that I don't he succeeded really, 12 or 12? Right. So. I we, mean, obviously there's. He might, look, it's like, it's, it's a, I, I think the simple answer to this question is that I would use an analogy to Shaul HaMelech, okay? Shaul HaMelech, if you read the Tanakh, you come away with a very negative view. He just seems like a guy that took a job reluctantly. In the beginning, he seems like a sympathetic character, and then he becomes like a paranoid maniac. And then he decides to go to the Balatov. You know, he, he doesn't seem like a, like a character to be emulated. And yet... He's considered the, a great tzaddik. And, and the rabbis consider him a great tzaddik. And we see that the fact that he had to find the balat ov in some you know, hidden uh, dark alley somewhere, it says, oh, because he got rid of all of the... Uh, it never told us that he got rid of all the occults, you know, uh, people in, in, in all of these practitioners of the occult in Eretz Israel. Why did it never tell us that? Right? So it, it doesn't mention it because it's not critical to the story. Okay, and in fact, the Chazal say that the Jewish people were punished because they didn't give proper hespedim to show. They only focused on the negative. <laughs> so the Tanakh sometimes gives us only so much information, meaning the main point in Yaakov's parenting that ended up being, being significant was the things he did wrong with yeah. Yosef and the brothers. Yeah. We see from the product that 12 sons all following Derech Hashem, that he must have done something right. You know? But we don't know exactly how that worked. The, it gets overshadowed. So it would be wrong to say, oh, he was probably a bad father. Yeah, but right. that right? also happens, though. What? 12 for 12? No. No, but you could also have a case where the father doesn't do everything right and the kids come He didn't do everything spite. right. Uh, he didn't spite. do it. I wouldn't. Right, but not doing everything right is not the same as not doing right. anything well, right. Just kids. They didn't really turn out to yeah, be. Yeah, and I'm sure he did everything right. I, I'm not so sure. Yeah, or whatever. I don't know. Who knows? I doubt he was around much. Yeah, but he, like, he was a little busy. Yeah. So, like, I, I think that's the whole point. Leaders' sons yeah. oftentimes <laughs> yeah. suffer from the neglect. It's a common thing. But we're talking about Yaakov, who wasn't a wasn't a national leader. He was a family leader, and and there is a. Like the way that the Rambam talks about him and the way that Chazal talk about him, that he was the first of the Avot, that all of his kids successfully ended up yeah. making it. And that's in this week's parashah that he said that they, they he said to them, Do you, are you all, are, and maybe some of you are not with me on Yichud Hashem. And they said, Shema, Shema Avinu Yisrael, Adonai Luenu Adonai Chan. Mm-hmm. And then he said, Baruch Shem Kivod. Right? And the Rambam even has that in Hilchot Kriyat Shema. That, that, that's why we say it. So he succeeded. So we don't know exactly how he did it, but we know that he was successful in making sure that all of his kids stayed true to the idea of Yichud Hashem. Proof is in the pudding. Proof is in the pudding. We don't know exactly how he did it. The Tanakh zeroes in on what's significant for the storyline, which is the mistake he made with Yosef and and which ended up costing, uh, causing great damage, what we can learn from that. And the product, I mean, maybe one of the lessons we can learn is you don't have to be perfect to do a lot right. Because he he did a lot right for the one you know for the as bad as what he did uh, that put the you know put the whole situation in motion with Yosef and the brothers, he did a lot right because we see the product you know. Right.
Shaul was a good example. Yeah, Shaul is a uh, Shaul is a good example because the situation um, maybe changed with others. Not I don't know. It's complicated. Like Yehuda could have been one of the people that just went off. Right. So obviously has to come back to his family. Well, it seems. You know, I think it's. I think that there's something in the fact that at the end of the day, in the end, they all are united yeah. in. Forming a separate community in Egypt, in Goshen, sh- having a separate identity with a s- separate mission of commitment to Hashem and not wanting to assimilate, even though obviously that didn't last, shows you that Yaakov succeeded, let's say, where Avraham, only one of his two sons, really followed, and Yitzchak, only one of his two, and he only had to deal with two, and he only got one. You know? uh, I so, guess maybe, maybe, I mean, again, it's all hypothetical, maybe the, the, the situation of selling their brothers have changed the brothers themselves maybe brothers it, may, it, it could be it could be it could be that they were more receptive <laughs> but it could be more than more receptive but even the way that you read the selling of the brothers um the way that most of the mafarshim understand that is that precisely because the brothers were very committed to the the vision of creating an am kadosh and this whole concept, they thought Yosef was going to destroy it because he wanted to be a totalitarian uh, leader and lord over all of them. And so therefore, he, um, and so therefore they wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. So like, it was actually a function of their commitment to the idea that they overstepped their boundaries and took the law into their own hand. They thought their old father you know, was out of touch and he didn't realize how dangerous Yosef was. And so it was actually because of that that they did it, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But it's a good point. Sure. Yes, Mr. Carmeli, it's your turn. You've been waiting very patiently. I have a lot to ask. I think Adam's going to start reading a pasuk as soon as you yeah. talk. Halakha. Um, Halakha. <laughs> one question that I had had for a long time. It's a big question for me. It's like a classic. It's one of the questions that, in all these like atheist debates that they ask, and I find it to be like a well-founded question. That I asked you before, and I'll even remind you what you answered, um, was how much of what we believe and how we act and how we think, you know, we're... Uh, learning and, and developing the proper framework with which to view the world, how much of that is a product of our circumstance and the fact that we're born into you know, a Jew, two Jewish parents and gone to Jewish schools at no, uh, to no credit of our own and we're given a certain set of you know, circumstances that have developed where we are today. Um, you know, what credit can we take from that? And how, do you, how do we judge people who didn't have you know, those privileges. What does that do to atheism? The atheists say, you know, you believe what you believe because what if you were born to, you know, two Mongolian parents, would you still have those Christian views or Jewish or Muslim views? Mm-hmm. Um, and what you said, rabbis, there's certain, um, there's certain basic fundamental truths and ideas, and you, you quoted Abraham, you cited Abraham also, you know, he was put into a, an unfortunate set of circumstances as, as it pertains to this, and he was able to come up with certain basic ideas, and regardless of, um, you know, how you were born, or where you were born, or what time frame, time, what year, um, there's certain basic ideas that it's safe to say that any truth-seeking person would be able to, to reach. So, somewhat of a, like, amusing question is, if you were born uh, in Africa, or in the hills of Tibet, what do you think you would be doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> I have no... I, that's very hard to imagine. That's it's pretty far, pretty remote. I, I don't even know what the people who do in the, you know, do in the hills of Tibet now. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure. So uh, I can't imagine that. But if I take your question non-literally... 
Maybe you'd buy the Kutub. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the question is, um, I think what you're getting at, and I, I remember having this discussion with you once before, a while back. Um, I think what you're really trying to get at is that there's an assumption that our, we're attached to our beliefs because they're familiar to us. And that people tend to maintain the same <coughs> beliefs over time pretty consistently, whatever they're brought up with or whatever they're exposed to in their childhood, they tend to, uh, they tend to remain with that, whether it's religious beliefs, even political beliefs, social beliefs, cultural attitudes, that whatever they absorb in their youth, they tend to stick with it because what's familiar to us is what feels the most comfortable. And unless somebody is inspired for some reason or another or challenged or you know, goes exploring or in some kind of a critical quest on their own to evaluate their own beliefs, they're most likely gonna remain with the status quo. So therefore 99% of people, whatever they're born into, I don't know, that might be an exaggeration, maybe not 99%, but most people, are whatever they're born into uh, is what they stay. And so therefore an atheist or whoever will say that you're, you're defending your beliefs you're defending beliefs that you're only attached to for emotional reasons, right? Because they're familiar to you and you like them and you grew up with them. So it's true. Right? So the only thing is that... Um, it's a classic atheist argument. Right. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a very bad argument because just evaluate my arg- whatever I'm saying based on its merits. Who cares why I, why I came up with this position? Yeah, but it's, they're going to say, but wait, but you but can't wait. really see the truth. Wait, okay, that's well, a different no, story. But, no, but also, it's a yeah. comment on everyone to still get, to get there on their own, though. Yeah, so I mean, that's even, true like, for... Even if something's yeah. passed on to you, you should... You should well, that's another part of the question. I mean, yes. Like, do we, you really believe something was given to you? Like, well, you know, I think a lot of people go through like life without questioning too much. A lot of people continue on whatever they believe without ever questioning it or with minimally questioning it. I think that's true. But that doesn't mean that if I give an argument for for a belief that I have and you can't counter it, that it's a legitimate answer to say that I only believe it because yeah, I was brought true. up with it. Yeah. If the person has a, a, meaning the ideas should stay in the realm of ideas. If we're arguing about whether an idea is true or not, like God exists and what, was I brought up by parents who believe God exists? Yes. So that doesn't mean that my belief that God exists is predicated on that. That just means that's how I got to the belief. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the truth of the belief is dependent upon that. Why would it be? That's like saying that because my parents taught me that the earth is round, that means that I only believe the earth is round because my parents taught me. It's like, it's not true. If you can show me a proof that the earth is not round, uh, or, you know, then I'll have to entertain it. And if I give you arguments why the earth is round, even though I learned the idea from my parents, they could still be true. So, yeah, the flip side though, if someone got the idea from their parents that the world is flat. Right. Then what? And if they try to defend it and, they, and their only argument is, I think everybody in the world is lying and I'm telling the truth, that's not a good argument. But if yeah, they have... It also wouldn't be a good argument if we heard them say, it's because my parents taught me. Right, of course. But no, I don't think anybody says that in an argument with atheists. Yeah. I think in an argument with atheists, the point is that the, the atheist is implying that you're not really objective about this right. because your parents taught you to believe this or that. But my parents taught me to believe a lot of things. And, and I and, and, and as, some of them can be very valuable, right? And as right, and as an adult or as a as a growing person, I've 
you know, I've examined those beliefs and these are the reasons why I believe it now, why I've continued exactly. to believe it. Right. So either respond to the reasons that I give you for why I continue to believe it or don't, but don't question how I came to the belief because we come to a lot. Yeah. I, you know, I, I arrived at a lot of the beliefs that I have about the world from my parents because that's who raised me, just like this atheist also did. That doesn't mean, like he probably learned that you can't, attack, you know, kill people or steal or uh, commit adultery or whatever he learned in terms of values from his parents too. And he probably still believes it. So does that mean that those things are not valid because he learned them from his parents? I don't think he would say that. He might now have a better reason, explanation why he believes in those things. And if I want to debate him on those things, I have to debate him on the reasons, not on how he came to believe it. So the fact that, yes, people are brought up in a culture. If I were brought up in a culture that taught different things, then being an ordinary person, most likely I would have continued with believing the same things that everybody around me did. I'm not gonna assume that I would have thought anything different, but I just would have been wrong then. So I was fortunate that I was born into a culture that I learned the right things, and now from a process of learning, I don't believe them anymore just because I was taught them by elders, I believe them for independent reasons. If I had learned, there are things that I was taught as a child that I've rejected since I was a child. And there are things that you were taught as a child, even in the context of your Judaism, that you've revised or reframed or abandoned because you realized that there was a childish way of thinking about things that was incorrect. Even within your tradition, you've done that, right? So I can't imagine that for myself, I'm, the, uh, such an, I'm not like an independent mind that I'm gonna rise above my cultural setting and believe something else, but that doesn't mean I would think that that was right. I just would have been unfortunate that, in receiving that, that uh, Moshe, wrong information. Sorry, is that, is like Avram is more like that. Now Moshe, Moshe had a connection with Judaism from the beginning. Really? Yeah, he was, he was part of his family. But, you, but I, I don't think that I, because he had his connection, he knew his family. Yeah. But I, I, for me, I would, I can't imagine that I would move so far. Hopefully I would be a critical consumer of whatever, whatever uh, culture I found myself in. But the truth is that a lot of my critical thinking skills or my critical thinking attitude came from my Judaism. So, I so I'm not sure if I even would have done that. I probably would have just been a simpleton like the rest of the people in Tibet. I, I mean, I don't know what they do, but... Probably would have been a regular Tibetan, but I would have been, uh, I, and that would be unfortunate. So sometimes we're fortunate enough to receive correct ideas that we can later validate. And sometimes we're unfortunate enough not to receive correct ideas. And sometimes the people who are, who are unfortunate end up developing the skills to crit critically evaluate them and, and change course. And another, now, that doesn't mean that I think that, that Tibetan ideas would be more right because I was born into them. I, would just, I probably wouldn't even be thinking about whether they were right or not. I probably would just be moving on with them. The whole reason that, the whole fact that I'm having this discussion is only because I learned to think critically about them. So yeah, so, so follow up on that. Does that concept of critical thinking, self-reflection, does it not exist in the Quran? Because like, as I live here and see what's going on, it seems to be that it's not... It's not really a value. Like they're, they're, they're very big, Muslims are very propagandist, a lot of group things. Well, you have to think about what, what is Islam really about. Islam is about submission. It's about submission to authority, the authority of God, the authority of Muhammad. It's not really about critical thinking so much. That doesn't mean they didn't have a lot of brilliant people who are Muslims, they did. Yeah. But uh, it's not a value. It's also not a, there are many religions where it's not a value. I studied in the Catholic University. My teachers were priests and, uh, and I still talk to them today. Like still talk to them until now, uh, correspond with them occasionally, although they're pretty old now. Um, and I once asked one of my teachers, I was like, you know, in Judaism, 
learning and thinking, it's very, very important. Like how important is learning in, uh, in Catholicism? I said, you know, I only know what I've read from books. And he said, well, it's very praiseworthy if somebody wants to study their faith. You know, it's very nice, but you know, it's not necessary to be saved. It's not no. obvious that if you're learning your critical thinking either. It's not so obvious to me. Yeah, what, Torah? <laughs> if you're learning means... Well, it depends. Thing. The problem with... the Muslims learn a lot. Yeah, but they don't learn like us. Yeah. So do you feel more... This is a deeper question. Do you feel more comfort knowing that because Muslims don't critical think, they don't have as much feed, feedback loop systems in whatever organization they create, like a military? And yeah. because we critically think, our military may be more dynamic... It's probably true. But is that something... Is that something good? Is that something you think about? Like, have you thought about that idea? Yeah, I, I often say to myself, I'm glad that our enemies are not very smart. <laughs> yes. but, but, I, but I'm a little bit afraid of, like... It's weaponry now. Right, it's, 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 right but it's, there is stra- there's still there strategy. strategy. There's a lot of strategy. I mean, that it, we definitely have an advantage in that, and there's no question about it. But and I... They also... Have, but have our, strategy, like, logistical advantages, but in terms of... Intelligence, adva- intelligence advantages, well, logistical see, advantages. Thinking, numbers um, obviously numbers play right. the game. Look at the Maccabeam. Look at, you know, right. so uh, I mean, I, I think, I think the, the point is that, um, that, t- that our learning is of a different nature because the nature of the way that Jews learn is by questioning and analyzing and nitpicking Back that, and forth, you right? You get that from Gemara. You get that somewhat from other Torah Shabbat. But no, even that's not true because even when you learn Torah Shabbat, the style of learning is always asking questions. The style of learning is always raising problems and arguing, and like, and I think that trains the mind differently. No, that's Torah Shabbat. Is it possible it's not borrowed from the Greeks? No, we yeah. find. No, I don't. Why would you could think you, that? Could you explain how the submission? Why would you think Muslims? that? Do you think Jews or were Amkshe Oref only starting with the Greek? No, um, it's not not like because these arguments do have like, happen like Plato's Republic. Like the style I'm not argument, saying but, that nobody else knows how to argue. Yes, right, the difference between the two <laughs> is that our tradition of being you know, of questioning and analytic thinking and all that really goes back there. to biblical times. Yeah. Because you, you yeah. the submission of Muslims leads to less critical thought than our obedience to Hashem. Wait, and Muslims tie in because Chuva is an act of self reflection. Reflection, right. Does that yeah, for sure. That's an element of it too. Does that exist in Islam? Is uh, that I don't know. I assume yes, because they have like Ramadan or whatever, but I mean, I'm not really, I don't Are really you, know. I don't know as much about Islam as I. I thought you did. I know some. No, I didn't mean that in like a because I, I know that you read like... I'm not as... I'm, like, I, I haven't encountered discussions of Teshuvah and I've read a lot, but I haven't. Like, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the religion. I just... It might not be as prominent of a thing that I noticed. Rabbi Khan said all the time, he's like, Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's like, he read it before he went to sleep. Oh, so because... Because even in... Oh, well, and I'll give you a good example. Ram had a good question. I'll give you an example that just came to my mind. Okay, to illustrate this. Our idea... The idea of submission in Islam doesn't mean to think into the matter. It means just to accept it and do it. Right? They do have laws, but the, even their laws, they have recitation, like the recitation of Quran and Hadith, and they have, like, halakha. Not, you know... Simil- more similar to that kind of halakha. It's just like ritualized. It's just like 
they do have a system of deriving laws. They have different schools of law. And they had brilliant philosophers and stuff like that, but that's not a, they don't sit and steig around yeah. the thing. It's not, they memorize, they read and they memorize and they follow. That's how, that's their, right, that's their, it's not engaging the critical faculty where they ask questions, where they, it's not of that nature. Whereas in Judaism, the obedience to God is that God says to you, I want you to know, I want you to challenge, I want you to question. Avraham Avinu argues with God. That's an example of, you know, with, with regard to Sodom. What about this? What about this? What about that? Moshe Rabbeinu arg- literally argues with God. Right? So you see that Hashem doesn't expect you to be passive. He wants you to engage in the process of finding the truth and understanding what he's asking of you. So if you, and we even see that in one case, Aaron is wrong about his, or Moshe is wrong about his application of the Alachan Parashat Shmini, and Aaron is right. And Moshe says, ah, you're right. Meaning Moshe received the tzivoy, he didn't understand it correctly. And Aaron understood it better. So there's, there's a process, or even the fact that you see that the Torah sets up an idea of there's going to be divrei rivot bisharecha about halacha, there's going to be arguments, so you need a bet din to resolve it. So the idea that there's going to be argument, disagreement, debate, analysis to get to the bottom of things, that is our religious activity. That's why it's not, a, it's not, it's not just, it's obedience to the truth. So that requires, uh, that requires confronting the truth and, and, and engaging and getting to that point. That's not the same thing as obedience to a rule. You know, like, there, like that's, that's old, yeah. old Pesach is about also Kishalacha like, Bincha. Right? And they're going back and forth, and the, yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> the whole Seder is a, is a, is like a show. It's a back and forth, especially the Haketchinav. The show, it's like My a favorite part. show of like questions and answers. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Do you think you, I'm gonna, sorry. Like, do you think, because it's interesting that they have, a lot of Muslims that have modern weaponry without getting there through. That process bought, of, yeah. of like objectivity and back and forth of science that right. probably came from. They don't really have much. Have you heard of any interesting scientists coming out of any Arab countries lately? No. Yeah, yeah exactly. They killed. Only right. <laughs> no, in, in Iran, that's Iran has is different. I mean, I'm not just saying this as a point of you know pride that no, it's Iranian, just, it's but I, it, Iranians are not Arabs, not and Arabs. they have right. They have, they're actually pretty educated, which yeah. makes them more dangerous than yeah. the Arabs. Khomeini, yeah. Khomeini just said yesterday that. Uh, Women do not belong in the kitchen. Really? Yeah. Why? That's pretty crazy. Yeah, he said, and he made it, made it to all what do mean, women. What do you mean they don't belong in the kitchen? And women and men should share responsibility. What? He did? Wow, he did. wow he's becoming modern. Yesterday. What a progressive guy. I guess men are going to start making tadig now. <coughs> Very exciting. Um, oh, he's becoming left as like a <laughs> <laughs> Did you expect him and Fetterman flipped? He's confirming confirming Rabbi John's theory that crazy people are leftists. They are, though. I think this is more troubling than it is. I liked him better when he was a right wing. At least he was A lot of people get a lot of, people get emotional comfort. Themselves a continuation of King Cyrus. The, the Empire. I, I find it like bizarre. Like, like how are you gonna like do you have like thoughts on that? Yeah, I have no I idea. Was, I mean it's it's it bizarre to me. Look, they're trying to they, they wanna take pride in their uh, you know, in their background and their history, I guess. Are they really the same people from I, you know? 
Uh, the original Persians? Yeah, you know, are they really, like, what's similar? I don't think so. No, those original ones yeah, are Palestinian. Yeah, they're Palestinian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the Zoroastrians? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, the Zoroastrians, maybe, yeah. The Zoroastrians probably are, yeah. The Parsi, the actual, uh, yeah, the actual. Freddie Mercury. Yeah, yeah Freddie Mercury, Allah <laughs> Vashalom. And then the Muslim yeah. colonists came in. Yeah. The rest yeah. of history. When did colonialism start? Like, why aren't Muslims colonists? Since they, they conquered the entire Arab <laughs> world. Why, why can't we make Because they're not, they're not white. Yeah, not because, not because, no, the reason why... The Jews reason, don't do good propaganda. No, no the reason why is because originally Palestinians ruled the entire world. Uh, yeah. And then the Arabs, they were just taking In back. the beginning. God In the beginning, God created us. They were Adam and Eve were actually Palestinians. <laughs> it's well known. The snake was Jewish. Did it with a dinosaur? Oh, he did. with Okay, well, Jordan, you had something you were going to try. You tried to say it. Let, let, let Jordan do, do one. You want to have one? Okay, good. Very controversial. I'm nervous. I was trying to skip you. No, because... What are your thoughts on that? Like, okay, I don't like. What are your thoughts on actually committing genocide? Hey, okay. Like, <laughs> what like, do you mean? No, like I kill Arabs. No, like, like the the connection that was made. The connection that was made between like what happened with Hamas, like what they did October seventh, that being a very Amaleki kind of behavior, right. very barbaric. To me, it was the first time where I, where I understood in Tanakh, where God says, eliminate people because they're just completely god-awful people. You have to just eliminate them completely. Right. You know? And, like, it was kind of, it was the first time where I could relate to something like that in the text. Right. You know? Like, what... Not just god-awful, but also because it actually the, the gets evil a, right. is so uh, yeah, deeply seeded no, into the culture... Yeah. That the only way to but to literally stop the chinuch of the children, know, yeah, 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 versus, it, yeah, it's uh, insane. Yeah. It's insane. It's, it's to get feedback, but doesn't stop. Yeah, it, it, I, I have to. I mean, I, I don't know what the really actual definition of genocide is, so I don't want to no. comment on that. But I, would say I, I think you know, it's the problem is. Mm-hmm. I, I guess what this incident has definitely brought to light is how you know maybe sometimes we look at the stories of Tanakh, like you said, we look at the stories of Tanakh, and we're like, well, how could it be that every Amalek person yeah, right, is yeah. that you know, like how could it be? But then you see that actually um, there could be something like that where where everybody is is actually uh, it's so is actually culturally bad. and it's culturally entrenched. So one of the things about Amalek that I think is important to understand, even though this is not really your question, but I think it's good to to comment on for posterity for anybody who wants to. I think we t- we might have had a discussion about it uh, in the past. Is that um, you know Amalek in, in a lot of in the mainstream Jewish world Amalek is always thought of as the arch anti Semites. They just want to destroy Jews. Um, I don't really think that that's accurate in terms of Tanakh. In Tanakh, the people of Amalek are uh, are just mercenary. Um, actually, I think of them more as as sort of um, they're like terrorists actually, but they're they're pirates. Meaning they they identified uh, poorly defended communities and yeah. villages and whatever, and they just raided them, invaded them, killed the people, and took their stuff. That's what they were doing in Sefer Shmuel also. And, and even after Shaul, 
destroyed Amalek except for one person, somehow when David is, uh, you know, is on the run, all of a sudden there's a ton of Amalek again. So, it's a, so Amalek seems like it's more of a culture than it is a, um, than it's like a specific ethnic group because how is it possible that Shaul eliminated every Amaleki except for one and, and then all of a sudden, what? That was just Amalek. But it sounded like the only person he kept alive was was one person. Yeah. So you think it was just a geographical location? Yeah, they're all over. That's what I thought. So, so in in any case, the point is that they're not really. Their whole focus wasn't just on Jews. People think that this group was like somehow focused totally on killing Jews the way that the the Hamas is. It's not not just Jews. It's, it's that, just everywhere but, they go. It's the everywhere, right. Just think, like the Palestinians. Right. <laughs> it's that everywhere they go, they seek to find what the weakest links are and they exploit them. Right? So, so when they, they go su- to Egypt, right. they start doing terrorism there. The Egyptians kick them out. Jordan, same exact thing. It's it's embedded culture. So in so in the in the um, in the uh, in in the. Uh, in the case of Amalek, when they go to, when they go to, um, when they see the Jews leaving Mitzrayim, it's not like they're thinking, oh, we hate Jews. They don't, I don't even think they knew what Jews, much about Jews. The point was that the Jews were this vulnerable, weak, tired slaves running with a lot of money on them, you know, uh, into the desert. And they figured we can take advantage of this, kill them, attack them, take their stuff. And so, yeah, it's evil. It's evil because it's evil to <laughs> exploit the weak and to, you know, terrorize them for your own personal gain. That's why it's evil. It's not evil because, purely because of anti-Semitism. And the reason why Amalek is the enemy of Israel in the context of the Malchut Yisrael is because the job of the uh, Malchut Yisrael is to, get, is to rid itself of any kind of injustice. That's why the... That's why the um, what, it wasn't supposed to be done during the, uh, during the war against the Canaanim. It wasn't supposed, the Milchemet Amalek was supposed to be done after the kingdom of Israel was established. So the king exercises his power to do two things, which is to eliminate the organized crime, basically, to eliminate systemic injustice, let's call it. Not just because they were anti-Semites. That was just a symptom. That wasn't the disease, yeah. right? To eliminate that and to establish the Beit HaMikdash. Those are the two things that the uh, that that the the uh, that come under the heading of uh, of the Melech Yisrael. So, in terms of this case, yeah, these are this is a culture that is um, really corrupt down to the core. Does it come under like the technical mitzvah of Amalek? I don't know that that would be true, but does it come under, let's say, a similar situation? What I, I in my mind, I compare it more to the story of Shechem with uh, Shimon and Levi. Because the, because the way the Rambam approaches the story of Shechem is that Shimon, the reason why Shimon and Levi were justified morally in you know, killing all the people of Shechem... I didn't know that they were, by the way. Well, that's what the Rambam said. The Rambam okay. said, when he explains it... Was upset. But, ah, right, but yes. why was he upset? So, right, so they, they, the reason why... Because he he, they heard his comfort. Right, right, right. But, right, so the, so the, right. In other words, it was, it was a political consideration yeah. that, that okay, he was upset about. Right, okay. meaning... It, it, so the Rambam tries to explain why is there not a, an issue of principle in killing them? Why is it only a political concern of Yaakov? Why is there no other concern? So the answer is because since it was a lawless society, meaning any society where somebody could go and uh, kidnap and assault a, a woman and then hold her ho- hostage, okay, very, very similar circumstances, although it was only one woman in that case and not hundreds, 
Okay, and the society harbors them and allows it and enables it to happen and doesn't try to bring them to justice or correct it and actually thinks it's great or at least fine. You know, they're not troubled by what's going on. They're not trying to enforce any law. That type of society is in basically not considered a civilized society. It's it's in it's against the uh, the the laws of Bnei Noach and therefore there was it, they had every legal justification or moral justification, let's say, to to attack them and to kill them. But so Why that everyone, though? because the 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 way the Rambam says no, is he they, says they right, every do, like, they did all do like, it, was, it was done so they could make more money from like a partnership with the Jews. It wasn't like. Uh, it wasn't done for any spiritual reason. So, so, the, so that's how the Rambam explains the moral justification of it, that they were a corrupt society. I mean, I'm not, that meaning once you're, once you're a totally corrupt to the core society, there's a moral justification in, des- in destroying that society. That's what the Rambam is saying. So applying that logic to the case that we're in now. Yeah. So it does seem to apply. It does seem to be the same sort of thing. You're talking about a culture that is thoroughly... Uh, uh, you know, um, it, it's completely uh, corrupt yeah. uh, culture, um, and it's from top to bottom, basically with very few exceptions. And then, then it comes back to the story of Shimon and Levi, which is that Yaakov said that Afal that you have to consider political matters. You know, when you take when you actually do it, meaning you could be morally justified in doing something, and it still might not be the practically best thing to do. So, the que- so you still are left with considering the practical factors, even if you're morally justified to do something. I think that's the, ba- yeah, you but, know, that's... But Rabbi, do you remember Yaakov himself was the one who was like, oh, now everybody's going to come after me. And he was me. worried. No and did. nobody did. It doesn't Why? matter. He still was worried. Yeah, but I'm saying, but the point is... Was he wrong? He was... The reason why he was wrong was because they showed force. Meaning they, they showed... Um, they showed we're crazy. You can't mess right. with us. Maybe, but also later in the, at the end when he gives the brachot, he criticizes them again. Right. Meaning he still thought they point. didn't the, properly the they weigh. Right. Okay. But he's. St- I'm, that's one thing. But you know, is it still? Meaning it was politically unsavvy. Right. The question was whether it was right. It worked in the in, in that particular situation, but he still thought it wasn't a good way to go about things. Right. You have to think through the implications of everything that you do. So I, I don't think you can just be rash about any major decision. You have to think about just saying, let, let's put it this way, saying that you have to think practically about a decision doesn't mean you're not morally justified in the decision that you want to make. It just means that you have to also consider factors that can affect you um, as a result of undertaking that decision. You don't want to incur harm yourself as a, from a practical standpoint. But you That's don't all. think that conviction in your cause and being unapologetic whenever you're doing what you believe is right ends up being, in the long run, also politically uh, expedient. Meaning, that, that's what I find uh, on, a, on a small level. Meaning, on an individual level, it tends to be, that let, let's take a very neutral case that you would agree with, um, somebody who is in the workforce and their boss tells them, you need to work on Shabbat. And he says, no, I, I don't work on Shabbat as a rule. And that, that's my line, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bust myself for you. Every other day? Every other day. The Shabbat is my day. I take it off. This is my, this is my time. This is my, right. this is my religion, whatever he says. Right, and he sticks to it. I had a discussion with you about 
free will. And the reason why this is very about pertinent. About free will. And the reason why it's very pertinent now is because cause it came up, like, especially with, like, with the October 7th. Uh, yeah, yeah. Incident. So, this basically, this is like my, this, this, does, this does have like a very emotional aspect to it also, which I think is very important for me to keep, like, regulate. But, I, from what I understood, that there are basically two approaches in understanding uh, free will, especially when it comes to, it's when it comes to like murder. Is that A, it, there's like the, the approach of the what I understood, and like other Rishonim also, is that everything that happens uh, is destined by God, and um, a person uh, cannot, can never kill another individual without Hashem preordaining that that person's time is already come. And then there's, like, 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 like you mentioned also, that the Rambam and even like Orachaim, Akadosh. Akadosh. How man's free will goes so far to the extent where he can even preordain, he can kill somebody who wasn't preordained to, to that. So, um, and I remember when this came up with Hamas, like, uh, with Hamas, you're like, God didn't do it, like, Hamas did it. And for me, I guess part of the Nechama, part of the Hamas in general, um, and dealing with tragedy, is knowing that there's a, there's a plan A, A, Hashem has a plan, and how nothing in this world goes without Hashem closing his eyes. And, and uh, for whatever reason, there was some greater picture which was being fulfilled, even at this, maybe at this moment we're not seeing it, by this tragedy happening. And that's a really source of Nechama for me. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't say Nechama because there's, there's a size of Nechama yet. But, but at least somewhat of a, a coping mechanism or, or, or meaning in, in, the, in, the, in the tragedy I've seen. So, I don't know, I, I, I guess I'm just like, also like, you're trying to vent, also hear, hear your thoughts about this also. So like, like, are they both, are they both viable ways of understanding it? And B is like, um, I don't know, it, it really does. It just, it's the, the, the idea of saying how, how there could be a tragedy to this magnitude, how, God did, you know, held himself back from, or like, not <coughs> held himself back from, but, but closed, I guess, like, didn't actively, you know, I don't know, preordain. It just, it's, it's very, it's just very painful, very difficult to hear, honestly. Mm -hmm. I know it's, there's, there's, there's a lot of thought into that, but. Yeah, no, I. It's similar to our discussion this morning. We're gonna have to rename it. Yeah. Rename this. The, no, I. I um, no, I. What was the question again? It's. I'll, I'll, you know what I think about the topic already, but um, I. Different people find the chaman different ways. I, to your mind, and I guess to the mind, you see the theological problem that those opinions are solve is that they don't understand how it could be that a person can, you know that anything so great could happen to a person such as their premature death without, you know, God having it as part of the plan. Right. And uh, it makes you feel comforted to know that it couldn't have been any other way, so it had to be that way because God willed it. You know? I see why that would be comforting. 
because it seems it gives it a purpose and it, it makes it easier to swallow because you're wasteful, like okay like, right, so what, like all those people died for nothing. For nothing. Okay, God had a plan, and uh, and and it was meant to happen, and it makes a person feel better. Um, it's uh, I I look at it from the other side. That to me, the idea that um, we would give some kind of redeeming quality to vicious animal activity by those people is bad, right, takes the responsibility away from them and also, like, sanctifies something that was, was horrific because it's saying that, oh, this was God's will. This, this was God's will. So... It takes away our responsibility. Right, but those two things. I'm saying those two things are what bother me and, it, and, and not saying that God caused it is more comforting to me, meaning saying that God gives human beings free will to make choices and he expects us to use it wisely and we can even cause terrible damage and terrible injustice, that doesn't mean that it's not part of God's plan. Meaning, obviously, God knows all that's going to happen. So this fits into his plan somehow. We don't know, like you said, we don't exactly know what's going to mitgalgil from, from, from the current situation and where it's going to end. And maybe we'll, we're going to look back and say that these events brought forth some changes that are for the better. And so they weren't, you know, so we can see in retrospect that the losses weren't in vain because they brought about something better. Um, and, and that way I agree with you, meaning I, I think whatever situation develops, God utilizes it in his plan to bring about the end that he wills. I just think that, there's a, that, there's, that there is a, uh, there's a difference between saying that and saying that it was ordained by God. I'm not, I, I don't, even to me, it, this approach, I don't think it like vindicates what they did. Like, this is like the summit to like the Rishonam, they asked like by Taro, right? And like, mm-hmm. why am I time? Why am I I think there was right. Ramban asked on the Ramam, like, right. oh, like, oh, if according to you, like, uh, that, um, that, uh, oh, the time was already, uh, pure, pure ordained, uh, then the time was to, to be Mishabed, the Jewish people, right. so why wasn't Shine punished for what they did? Right. It gives the answer. But he says every individual Mitzri could have said, I don't want to do it. It almost seems like... Right? Yeah. But at the, at the same time, like, I, I'm, I'm not saying it vindicates... Um, I, I guess I, I don't think it vindicates it. I don't think it like, justifies it. I think it really more just... like I, it, it makes it... I don't know. I don't know if it makes it just more, like you said, like swallowable, like digestible. I can see why. Like, I often thought to myself... I'll give you an example of times when I've thought like that. If like Sometimes you'll hear somebody died like a young person, because I had a brain aneurysm. And when that happens, in a way, I say to myself, okay, there was literally nothing the person could have done ever to avoid it. They were born with that. Their time was limited. It's really sad that they're gone, but like literally that was preordained. Like literally that couldn't have been another way. That was the way they were born and that's it. And so even though it's sad, I see that it was, there wasn't another way to think about it. And when we, when we believed there was another way to think about it and it happened this bad way anyway, that's when it's hard to accept. When we believe that, uh, when we believe that, uh, you know, that there was no other way, exactly. then it's easier, exactly. right? Well, and, and, yeah. It's like when, it, like they say this, mm. they say a mundane example. When a person misses the train by like 10 seconds, they get really upset. If they miss it by like five minutes, it's yeah. like, okay, I was, I was way off, you know? Yeah. It couldn't have been another way. I never would have made it. Yeah. If they miss it by 10 seconds, 
It's like, if I had just moved slightly faster, oh my God. So that's how we feel when it comes to these tragedies. You want to feel that it couldn't have been any other way. So therefore, it was part of God's plan. And I don't have to keep going over and over in my head. I wish it had been another way because it couldn't have been. That really is. That's that's what I'm saying. It really does make a tragedy. Feel more like... Yeah, easier like, to like, swallow. Like, 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 like when you know, like when you know, like, when you know, like a kid's time, for example, a young a young girl passes away. Her she's she's she was born with that. She's right. done a lot, and right. she and her time has come, and she's and she's fulfilled, and she hasn't had, I guess, I you know, if you say it, man, like like her more more to offer in this world. I mean, she already she fulfilled her tikkun. Whatever you want to say it. It really is. It, 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 it does provide a source of nechama. Yeah, no, I agree in that case. I, I agree with that case. I'm, I'm talk, when, it, when it comes to an, a... Per, I think where we're having a machloket is when there's a perpetrator, yeah. right? That's where it is. So, That's where, the, to me, the Rambam's even, way is but, uh, more... Even, but even that, like, to know that how... I, I guess, yeah, like, like, like especially how the many Gemara, like, and like, uh, I remember you responded, like, you're like, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't come with a conclusion based on a single Gemara. Like I, I hear, I don't know, but like, like at the end, they're also shlichim of like anyone is a shlich of God, you know. Uh, I'll tell but you what. When, when it comes to bechira, I guess that's where the dust is. It's complicated. When, when my Bechira starts impacting somebody else's yeah. life, so then the you question becomes, right how can God let the person exercising the Bechira have more, uh, you know, more of a right in that situation <laughs> than the person who's being the victim? Right. So the, I understand that. It, it, all, it, it occurs to me, as you guys are speaking, that it seems like almost the way that, and I, I don't know if this works on the, on the smaller scale, but on the larger scale, like whenever I think about like the really crazy perpetrations of just evil in the world, it almost seems like woven into the fabric of how Hashem created the, the world is that when through the Bikira of these people do very evil things, it's almost as if it's like a catalyst for very significant things to happen in a very short time. Like not that those things wouldn't have happened, but it seems that it, that it like accelerates. Like the birth of Israel, for example, after the exactly. Holocaust. Exactly. So, so, so the Holocaust to Israel seems like a very obvious one. Right. That it's not that we wouldn't have had, it's not that Yechazikil's prophecy wouldn't have happened, but the, the, ca- the catalyst for that event, it seems clear that that accelerated the process a lot. Uh, the same thing with Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? You have, you have Shibut Mitzrayim that leads to ultimately Matan Torah very shortly after. Right? Not to say that that never would have happened, but it seems as though it acts as a catalyst. No, I hear you. That's like sort of from a big picture, from a big picture yeah. framework. I, I don't know how to do it with the small stuff, though. Emotions. It's very good, right? I want to hear your emotions, Jordan. My emotions. Pour them out. Now that I know that I'm going to be quiet, Jordan has a question. That's okay. Uh, it's emotionally comfortable for people to think that whatever knowledge they don't have in this world, there's some sort of like omniscience. After death, there's a, you know, a, uh, whatever knowledge was. was hidden from them in this world, there's, it'll all be revealed to them, they'll know the secrets of secrets, they'll have you know, divine knowledge and omniscience in the next world. Um, it makes, for whatever reason, it makes people more comfortable. I mean like they'll understand everything in their they'll, life they'll, they'll, and stuff they, like that? They'll, they'll be able to, to see their relatives that are still in this world, and they'll have, you know... Oh, that kind of omniscience about what's going on in the or, world. Or, or just not, all, all knowledge. They'll, they'll know the secrets of secrets. Okay. Die. People, it's it's again on Chaim's theme of you know comforting thoughts. This is what people tend to make themselves believe. So is they're there like, they're looking down on me and they know that I'm yeah they they yeah. So my question is, and I know how these questions are generally how they're usually answered. 
you know, are there any traditions or any misorot or anything of what kind of, what, not, is there knowledge beyond what we've accumulated in Olam Hazeh? Okay. Is there anything, uh, any kind of knowledge that we, we know that could exist? Meaning it seems to negate what, <clears throat> what like, like the, the idea that whatever you acquired over here, you take with you. you know, like the Torah that you had, because you can't hold both, both true. You can't hold true that all the, the Torah that you acquired over here is what you get to take to Allah and also that you get access to all the information that's continuous. I know, but I'm saying, I'm saying it applies... Equally to anything else. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna dumb it down way more than it needs to be dumbed down. The, uh, the the fifth grade version of the question is you you know we're taught that you, you learn what you learn in this world and you acquire what you acquire non metaphysically in terms of knowledge and that's it. Whatever you got, you know it's you fill up your bags here and then uh, that's all you have to work with right in the next one. So, um, it's all obviously speculation. Don't know, but is there is there any uh, any kind of tradition or any kind of a source that credibly can can answer that question? Is that true? Is that is it? You know, knowledge is that the pursuit of knowledge and the attainment of knowledge is confined to the, to this. Well, what kind of knowledge are you talking about that you would gain in the next world? That's what I wasn't so clear about. You mean knowledge about things or knowledge no, about knowledge like about what's going on not, on Earth? Not, not, does it, does not, it make a difference? For yeah. Why? Because... The ability to know thoughts. The ability to... Know thoughts of whom? Other people. Again. Me, are you talking about the people on Earth? That's what I'm trying to clarify. Yeah, yes. As opposed to the other So you're saying you become people like, like uh, People like to think, I'm, I'm not even choose my Like words. an angel people, when you go, like, like people think, think you become yeah, like an angel. Yes, they exactly. attain some sort of divine knowledge right. that they'll know um, right. Right. what I was thinking. Like you're, gonna, you're gonna become like an angel. Yeah. And sort of all the loose ends will be tied up, you'll yeah, know yeah. all the, okay. Um, I don't, I mean, that's why I would, that's why I would divide what we're talking about when we're talking about knowledge, because I think in, in terms of your knowledge, whatever you've acquired and developed, your understanding in this world, that's talking about knowledge of ideas. Yeah. Not knowledge of the specific details of what people are thinking or doing or saying. Right? So, in that, that's usually what we're talking about in the framework of Olam uh, Haba, that that knowledge that you've acquired and attained in this world is taken to a higher level in Olam Haba. It's not that that's why they. That's why they. Uh, um, that's why Olam Haba is uh, the the benefit, so to speak, of Olam Haba, meaning what it, what it gives a person, is that all the disparate ideas and all the unclear understanding that you've gone as far as you can, and you haven't, you know, the connections that you've not fully worked out, you'll be able to see everything, like how it all fits together, and have a complete understanding of it in Olam Haba, because all of the limitations will be re- removed. And it will be like you're seeing every the whole panorama at once. So all the you know that's the that's the idea of Olam Haba that um, that usually the Rishonim talk about, like at least the Rambamic Rishonim, that kind of a that kind of Olam Haba. Um, knowing what's going on on Earth, the Gemara talks about it and says like we don't really know. Sorry, something like Sadiq Viralo would be in that first category. If you develop an idea and an understanding in that area up to a certain point, and then there's certain 
you know, there's certain connections you didn't make or certain, uh, certain ideas that weren't completely refined, then, uh, then it, will, it has the potential to help you to reach a further level of refinement of the idea. That's why, like, the, even the Chafetz Chaim says, oh, that's why you should learn Mishnayot, because, you know, you, whatever you learn in Torah in this world, you get to take it to the next level. So we can learn Rambam for that reason, right? Whatever you learn in, in this world... You, that whole picture will be, you know, sort of like brought together, and you'll you'll be able to see the big picture in in Olam Haba that you, you only you like speed like we're, like oh you know it's a good example like we were talking about the difference between Bina and Haskel today so like all the individual tivunot or you know points of Bina that you had that you didn't really interconnect them and 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 you didn't really unify them right so you, they were just individual insights could somehow coalesce into the Haskel. You know, in 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 Olam Haba, sort of, that might be a good analogy for it. Um, that's what happens now in terms of what's going on in this world. Uh, the Gemara actually talks about it in in Masachet Bachot that you know the, the Chachamim say they didn't know. You know, they go back and forth about whether whether the Metim know what's going on on Earth or they don't know what's going on on Earth, and they um, and they don't really give it a decisive answer. So apparently, even Chazal weren't 100% sure about that. Could that be, just to play the devil's advocate, like, could that be because of what Jordan's saying, that they know that it's, it's emotionally, it's emotionally convenient to think that there could be the possibility, so where they might know that that's actually not how it works, but because it's emotionally comforting to, to think that it does, so you kind of leave it open? I don't know. I, I don't know about that. I, it could be that they thought that, you know, a person... Just like, uh, just like a malach that is a mind that understands God, to, you know, in, in Olam Haba, you become like that, and they know what's going on on earth, so maybe you also will, uh, know what's going on on earth. They don't really know. Where could the idea that, that people who die become malachim have come Not that become a malach, but meaning that a malach just means a, a mind separate from a body. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what you become in Olam Haba. So just like there are minds separate from bodies that do, in fact, you know, have a knowledge of what's going on on earth as well. So it could be that a person is like that. I mean, I don't think we, you know, they're saying that Where they don't know. Their perception of, of Borei Olam is their, stuck at Their, their perception of the Borei Olam might also include a perception of what's going on in, in the Bria. We, we don't know. But they have a, at least according to the way that I, I understand the Rambam, the the Malach has a, has a static understanding of... It, it has a static dot of Borei Olam according to its level. Right. right, that's right. That's what a person would have to. So that's what it sounds like. So that's what you're saying. It that's like the like, idea of like the Neshama should have an Aliyah doesn't exist right, exactly. in Rambam. It's like, that's yeah. it. You're done. Right. So it sounds like that's what it, what it is for for the Met also. That they... They're statics. They, right. They, they would be in a static... In terms of what, what they've acquired... Right, that's why it says Misha Mechin Be'er Shabbat Yochal B'Shabbat Like that's it There's no like Do over Right What they call it Moed Bet here You have a second You get to take the test over (laughs) You know It doesn't work Um, But that You know I don't think we know For decisively Does a Rambam Ever talk about that No Do the Rishonim Talk about that idea You know The Nishamot Knowing what's going on on earth Not that I've ever seen But the Chazal mentioned it as a possibility, and they don't rule it out, so it's possible. Mm-hmm. Like because the because the because in Kohelet it says Vametim, the Metim don't know anything. So then the Gemara says no, that's not what it means, and they have a whole discussion and story, and in the end they kind of say that it, it's not really conclusive. 
It's interesting that the Gemara even wanted to, to talk about it at all. They're talking about the Pasuk and Kohelet. Yeah, but I'm saying there are certain passages of what Olam Abba looks like. And I, I, don't get me wrong, as, as time has gone on, I have been a, a lot more attracted by the idea of Yeshiva Shalmala because I realize the depth of, of that. It's a very deep idea. Yeah. I Meaning, at, at first, I, I, didn't, I wasn't mature enough to understand what they were actually talking about. Mm. Um, but still. Maybe you can tell us. Tell us because I don't know either. I probably don't know either, but um, I understand that it's a metaphor that has something to do with knowledge right. and engagement yeah, with knowledge. The, 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 point, that, the point being that the point is that your mamshich, what you right, meaning that, that right. their value was non-physical. Right. What what the goyim meaning you? It's just like, even we have like Shabbat going, as main olam haba, or a person will say like the Torah is like learning Torah is like main olam haba because right. that's the sort of state that olam haba offers you. Right. But that's only appreciated by somebody who appreciates those metaphysical right. things. But still, it, it seems like there, there is a deviation be. from the, what the Torah Shabbat is, is feeling. Presenting, right. Yeah. And, and, and like, there's definitely not much discussion of the Metim uh, being preoccupied with things on, on earth right. in any of the tradition. Just it, that the Gemara doesn't rule it out as possible. Meaning, just logically speaking, yeah. it's the most counterintuitive thing. It's like, you, you you can simultaneously hold in your brain that oh like maybe to the same to the same avel you'll tell them that they're in a better place right now but simultaneously that they're also preoccupied with what's going on with you and they really care. Yeah, I don't like, really hear that that often. Does that happen? Meaning not in the same sentence, right? But it's like they're both both comfort. Right. Meaning, and at one instance, oh, they're in a better place right now, and in the other instant, it'll be. Oh, you know this this single girl now got married because they were mainly to share her baba's smile help uh, right or that he arranged it for her you know right yeah, baba yeah. the other it, the yeah. other um, the other uh, the other thing that I was thinking was that there are some midrashim that talk about like you know the avot intervening in Shemaim for for Am Yisrael and all that and like not only that there's even, I mean there's even Chazal. Like Midrashim about, you know, Abraham intervening or Yaakov or Yitzchak saying, you know, to save the Jewish people when things are happening. and what, what that actually means. Right, right. Exactly. Is it a metaphor for their zuchut having some special uh, significance to that situation? That's one of the beautiful things about the way that we learn. That's like the, the Haskell kind of element that because the approach that we take constantly is one of curiosity. That that's been very important for me, uh, like in my in my own like intellectual growth. That instead of in, like whenever I encounter something like that, instead of being like, oh, that's just something that they say, it'll immediately be turned on to curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what's actually going on uh, like under the surface of what, what that what the, what's being said? So, like, right. Yeah, that is a totally a different orientation to it. Yeah. Okay. They're putting you to work.